0: The high cost of developing therapies impedes the pharmaceutical industry's ability to bring innovative products to market, but also leaves potentially valuable discoveries languishing on University shelves. The Swiss nonprofit foundation Molecule is trying to alter the landscape by establishing an online marketplace to create shared ownership of intellectual property and provide a new funding mechanism for early stage experimental therapies that could also lead to distributed research and development of promising drugs. We spoke to Paul Kohlhaas founder of Molecule, about the market it's developing, how it would work, and the challenges it will need to overcome to make it a reality.
1: Paul, thanks for joining us. Danny, it's, it's great to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're going to talk about Molecule, its unique approach for funding drug development, and, and the problem it's trying to address. Let's start with the problems. What are the challenges of drug development that's faced today and what do you think Molecule can address in its approach?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we kind of all know, I think that the drug development industry as a whole is, is hitting a, um, what, what some academics call an innovation crisis um, as the internal rate of return within large pharma companies uh, is really kind of hitting a, a break-even point. Um, that's expected to happen in about 2020. So in, in about 2020, um, and these are like studies from Deloitte, BCG, uh, across the industry as a whole, uh, pharma, economically speaking, would be better off cutting R and D. Um, just because drug development is increasingly getting too expensive and there's not enough innovation coming out of the pipeline. Um, I mean, we kind of all know the big, the big numbers that, that the industry runs on. It costs, it can cost up to two and a half billion on average to, to bring a drug to market. Um, it's very, very slow. So 10 to 15 years until a drug is approved. Um, and then on top of that, we're hitting these, we're hitting this innovation, uh, wall. Um, and like some people say there's an, and like an innovation crisis across pharma and that's like the business model that of of drug development today can be fundamentally questioned. Um, and I think on top of that, especially what's happening in the U.S., there's an increasing loss of trust in, the business model that, like parts of Pharma, have pursued for the past, uh, let's say, for the past twenty years. If you look at public health crises like the opioid crisis, or um, just just the increasing prices of drugs that are that are coming onto the market. Um, you know, there was a new new gene therapy treatment that was launched at a at a market price of just over two million uh, for for a treatment. Um, so, the problem that we're really trying to tackle is the incentives. Uh, the The innovation incentives within the pharma within the pharmaceutical ecosystem um, going from academia through to biotech and then up to large pharma companies um, and trying to rethink how incentives for innovation uh, uh, work at that very level
0: what incentives do does the drug industry have today to create innovation and, and what are the the value drivers for innovation today
1: yeah absolutely so the 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 value drivers for innovation in in the pharma space are really based on intellectual property and and the patent system. Um, and it's quite interesting to think about this think about innovation in the patent system itself. The like intellectual property law and patent law hasn't really changed almost over the past two hundred years since the first patents were issued in the in the United States. Um, so there's been very little legal innovation and. Um, if you think about what a patent essentially does, a patent is, is a pricing monopoly. Um but because one, one company owns a patent, that fundamentally disincentivizes collaboration um for anyone else to come in and kind of join in uh in, in developing a drug. So kind of collaboration across uh the um the, the pharmaceutical space. And so what patents essentially do they put the onus of, of drug development, sort of being the entire burden of the cost, as well as the risk, on one player. That then fully owns the commercialization rights to that to that drug. Now that makes sense, but if we think about how science fundamentally works, science works through collaboration, through through data sharing, um, and to think that our entire development and innovation process is is based on just one company doing all the work. Um, no wonder that that drug development is that expensive. Um, and so our sort of our first starting point of looking at this problem is looking at how the patent system and intellectual property work. Um, and you might remember, I think, I think about four months ago, there was a big hearing in front of the U.S. Senate where major representatives from, from pharma companies were including Pfizer and Sanofi, uh, and many others were called in front of the U.S. Senate to, to testify on, on the high drug pricing that resulted from these intellectual property monopolies. Um, so our fundamental approach to this, to the problem is like, what if we, what if we created a system that allowed, um, allowed, um, fractionalized ownership of intellectual property um, because we believe that's a fundamental disincentive to sharing and collaboratively developing drugs um, in an approach that is more similar to, to open source software. Um, so you know, we think that, I think, pharma and pharmaceutical development in a lot of ways could work a lot more like modern open source software development works. Um, of course, there's a lot of caveat to that basic notion. But, and the fundamental, the fundamental way to make that happen is to look at how intellectual property really
0: works. Well, let's talk about that. You have likened the drug industry to where the software industry was 30 years ago. Can, can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, if we think how software was developed by uh, companies like Microsoft or IBM in, in the early 90s or like mid-80s, um, it was a very, very similar approach. So software, so software was developed very proprietary um, everything happened under NDAs. There's these very close knit, uh, like research teams that were then developing, um, developing proprietary software that was being shipped on, on the machines, um, where the consumer would pay a very high price. There was very little in licensing being done. Um, and then what happened as Microsoft was getting a lot of market shares in the mid and late nineties, uh, the Linux foundation was kind of launched as a, kind of as a counter movement to that. And then, and then Linux and and, and Red Hat really started promoting uh, new business models around open source software that actually caused large parts of the industry to collaborate on on, on development of software. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the really, I, I think, well, maybe one one last point is that um, if you think of the marginal price of producing a, a pill that is already that is already in the market, the marginal price of of a pill essentially or or treatment is very very low. And the same way the marginal price of producing another piece of software, once you already, once you've done all the R&D is also close to zero. Um, so there are, while there's a lot of differences, there's also a lot of similarities in the way that open source software is developed to, to how pharmaceuticals could be developed.
0: How did that change software development?
1: Um, so the way that it changed software development was really it broke up the entire like market landscape. Um, and allowed a lot more grassroots development, um, in terms of how the biggest software projects in the world now kind of have, have come to be commercialized. Um, and has allowed an entire new kind of set of business models to emerge. So if we think of, for example, the, the, Android operating system, um, that is now being run, I think, on over like, say, I'd say over 80% of the world's, um, cellular devices. Um, creating operating system like this an enti- allowed an entire new, um, generation of, of applications to evolve. And that's just been in the course of less than, less than 10 years. Um, and we think that, that pharma is kind of still operating on those proprietary kind of patent based business model and, and soft and, and, um, software was in a very similar space in the 90s. Um, but pharma is really still, Operating in a similar space. Um, and there's a lot of innovation potential for, for bringing new business models into an industry that, that really needs it.
0: What is Molecule and how does it work?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So, um, so, maybe just to close one, one loop, one of the reasons why we can't just do, well, we can't develop drugs out in the open like we would with software is because of the high, the high development costs. Um, that go into developing a drug, and those development costs ultimately need to go back to someone who who funded the development of, of a drug. So, um, open source licenses in the way that we had them in in software don't really work in drug development. Um, but what if instead of open sourcing a license, we open sourced essentially the ownership of of a patent of the underlying IP to to develop a certain new molecule to develop a new drug. Um, so what Molecule essentially does, it combines these two big principles. One is like distributing ownership of an asset, um, like a patent, and then developing that asset in an open source fashion. Um, so what Molecule does is we create essentially open markets for for pharmaceuticals. Um, so the Molecule protocol that we're building is, is essentially a two-sided marketplace. Um, and you have to think of two-sided marketplaces in the same way that you think of Essentially, Uber is a two-sided marketplace that connects drivers and, and, and customers that are looking for a ride, um, Airbnb. So we've seen these marketplaces marketplace approaches become extremely effective in, in a, a lot of different industries um, around the world. Um, and pharma is one of the last industries that hasn't really been, um, been affected by them yet, but is one that really, I think, is in buy need of it. Um, and so what we do is we, we have an, uh, someone who creates IP, so a drug developer, This could be in very early stages coming out of academia, someone who's about to start a a spin-off from a university. It could be a biotech or a small pharma company that that is already up and running. Um, So someone who is actively developing a new drug um, could be an orphan disease. Um, uh, We're looking at a lot of different therapeutic areas. Um, And so that person is essentially looking for funding but might also want to decrease the development cost and develop that drug in a more transparent and open way. Where, um, they could include multiple stakeholders, um, like patients in, in a very early stage of development. Um, so what we do is, so that the drug developer would uh, create a market on molecule and that market now, um, allows anyone to, to, invest as well as contribute, um, to that, to that compound. Um, and what happens when you create a market, essentially you, you sell shares in the ownership of, of that intellectual of that intellectual property or in the new drug that is being developed. Um, and in return, you would receive funding for, um, for the development. Um, so the mechanics that are, that are at work here are kind of similar to making a listing on a, on a stock exchange. In this case, you're not listing your, your company, though. You would actually be listing, um, the, the intellectual property of, of your drug. And the other element, what what happens here is it's not just that you... I mean, if you invest in a company, there's normally not that much that you can contribute to that company's development. Um, but in this case, you would actually become a, a co-owner or you would become a licensee in that specific drug. And that now means that you could, if you're a researcher, for example, you could actively start researching that compound and producing data about it. Um, so let's say um, uh, the University of Zurich uh, lists a new potential molecule um, as a as cancer a therapeutic. And a researcher in India at the University of Bangalore, he sees this new molecule, he's been looking at a very similar class of molecule and decides he would like to, or she would like to um, research that drug, um, purchases a, a certain number of shares, um, and then essentially would perform a three month study um, to prove that this drug could affect certain receptors in a certain area, um, publishes that data, and then the market would correspond, depending on if that data is, is positive uh, or negative. So that's essentially where the whole open source approach comes in. Um, that opens up how the patent system works today, in that today the singular ownership disincentivizes research and collaboration. And by breaking up that ownership model, we can incentivize um, open source collaboration.
0: One of the essentials of a marketplace to have a, a level playing field is that everyone is operating with the same world of information. How does Molecule do that? Absolutely,
1: great question. Um, so
0: essentially, the
1: one way that Molecule drives information out into the open is through creating new incentives around it. Um, and with the marketplace, while everyone may have the same information um, that is publicly available, um, we can now essentially use science to create new information that previously wasn't available. Um and it's very interesting from our perspective what this does to the whole element of, of like public disclosure of information. Um because you can now ask yourself as a scientist if I produce new data about a potential new new Marco, um, to what extent and, and I then have an incentive to to contribute that to a public um kind of to a public Repository of information. So we essentially envision what, what could happen around drug development is that instead of information being closed off and siloed within within companies, um, uh, that researchers and scientists around the world, um, as well as companies, start contributing their data and their findings into these open source repositories. Um, and again, that's that's essentially a development that has happened and that we've seen a lot happening in in open source software development you have these, uh, these, these code repositories of, of different um, applications that are being worked on by developers from all over the world, sometimes ranging up to two to three to four hundred open source developers that are continuously building out a code base in an entirely open source fashion. Um, so, I think, in terms of what this does to public disclosure, but having equal information into a marketplace, I think it really increases the variety and the diversity of information that's available. Um, and then it also increases the scrutiny uh, around that information.
0: How does money raised through Molecule actually fund development? If I'm a a university that has idle IP sitting on the shelf and I go out and and list it on Molecule, am I just raising funds to essentially sell a stake in the IP or am I actually using that money to develop it?
1: great question um, so there's, there's two ways that um, this can go and we envision a multi like uh, a multitude of use cases to emerge on top of the protocol um, like one in one stage you could say for in one use case you could say you're essentially a university that wants to offload a piece of like shelf IP and see if there is interest like if there's purchasing interest in the market in this case you don't have anything to fund and you wouldn't set a specific funding goal you're essentially just looking to I, to, to essentially offload that that IP. Um, in a different use case, you might actually be actively developing this and might want to fund um, uh, doing kind of doing wet lab essays in in preclinical development. You might even want to fund like the early stages of a clinical trial, uh, and then you would set a specific funding target. Uh, and that funding target could be reached like as more and more interest and more kind of trading happens in that in that specific market that you have created. Um, so on the one side, you would say, I am willing to sell, for example, 40% of ownership in, in this IP. And what you're essentially selling at this point, and this this already happens in many financial transactions that we see um, more in the advanced stages of, of the drug development process and in terms of selling future royalty rights. Um, so there's a large private equity firm called Royalty Pharma that has been really very actively driving this business model uh, much more in the advanced and already approved stages in, in drug development. Um But the sale, the sale of, of, of royalty rights, even for pre-approved drugs, is something that happens fairly often. So what you'd be selling at this point is you're selling future royalty rights, and in in return you're getting some level of funding. Um, and within the market parameters, you would specifically define, um, in addition to to the to the pure amount that I'm selling, I'm also I also want to fund, let's say, one million for uh, my preclinical studies. Um, so that's very much a possibility.
0: Is there liquidity in the molecule market? And, and how do you assure that?
1: Absolutely. So it's essentially um, the liquidity question is kind of cr- creating a market from, from both sides. Um, we're Like for our go-to market, we're planning to, to engage a lot of different, um, like interesting disease areas. Uh, and each of those disease areas typically bring their own range of, of funders with them. Um, so a similar solution like Molecule hasn't really existed before. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see like the early days of a market like this come together. Uh, the typical, the kind of user bases that we're trying to, trying to attract early on are ranging from small scale institutional investors to, to biotech traders, um, to patients themselves who would like to crowdfund, um, a specific, a specific, um, New drug that might affect them. For example, in the orphan disease area, uh, we're making a lot of progress in neglected diseases, um, specifically in malaria, where there's, there's a large open source uh, community of, of researchers working on, on these issues globally already. Um, so we actually see a large amount of potential of not offering, like essentially offering a new model of funding, like crowdfunding and, and crowd investing in, um, in specifically in, in the early stages in underfunded drugs. But not in a way that would constitute as a donation, but that would constitute as something that can actually provide ROI to, um, to, to other users.
0: Well, what would determine the spread between the buy and the sell, and, and who would capture that spread?
1: So, in the early stages, I think would constitute success of a market, if, if that's maybe what you mean with the, the, the spread between a buy well, and a sell. I mean, theoretically, you have would a two-sided market,
0: market at any time, is that correct? any given moment, I assume there's a, a bid and an ask and there's a spread between those two prices. Who captures that spread and, and who maintains a, a market?
1: Absolutely. So um, the way that we, we bootstrap and we run markets on Molecule is using a novel um, pricing and, and market making mechanism that runs, uh, that runs via a smart contract on a blockchain. Um, and now while well, this all sounds very complicated, that underlying principle is actually fairly simple. In any traditional market offering, you would normally have an underwriter um, that ensures that the offering is fully filled. So if uh, let's say if I'm offering shares of my company um, at, a, at a certain range, then I need to make sure that all of those shares are sold. And then after that, those shares begin trading on an exchange where you then would have uh, a buy and... Um, But like a buy side and a sell side. Um, we kind of jump over that step by doing a primary offering and that primary offering happens directly through a smart contract. So instead of having an underwriter, the underwriter underwriter is being, the underwriting is being done by an autonomous program that prices, prices the shares that, that are being sold using an algorithm. Um, and what you kind of have to imagine this look like, it's essentially like a price, like a a microeconomic price curve. That determines that pegs price to, to supply, um, and then sh- uh, sells shares to whoever wants to buy them or sell them um, according to that pricing algorithm. Um, what this really allows us to do is to peg the, the initial valuation of an offering. Um, and if there is no interest in that, let's say you, you put on a specific new therapeutic, and this was some on the shelf IP, and there was never anyone interested in the IP. Um, you essentially are not taking any risk by conducting that, that offering. Um, because the offering, the risk is essentially being decentralized through that smart contract. So even if there's only very, very little investor interest, you can very easily unwind that offering again. Um, without ever having to, yeah, to, to do a full on underwriting as you would if you, if you listed on, on, let's say a NASDAQ or any other exchange.
0: You mentioned drugs for rare and neglected diseases. Are are there certain types of assets you think would be better suited for this market?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we the, the assets that we're targeting at the moment sort of for our go-to-market are specifically in the translational uh, disease area. So anything that has left the discovery stage that is entering preclinical. Um, and those are typically the stages where we see the biggest amount of potential in terms of these new funding solutions, um, uh, because there's a typical problem that um, that drugs in that stage enter into, which is called the valley of death. Which means they haven't; they're not attractive yet to large pharma or or for for pharma VC venture funding, um, and they're also not attractive anymore for like innovate from like for for grant funding from academia or, or government. Um, so that's specifically is a stage where we're quite interested in because also the the market valuations or the IP valuations that you typically look at there are between, range between like 5 to 10 to 15 million, um, which is quite suitable for for a crowdfunding-like approach. Um, Other areas that we're looking at specifically into are drugs that are stuck in phase 1 or phase 2 development um, that might have just hit their, missed their last funding target um, and yeah, there's a, there's a lot of really, really interesting, uh, drugs that unfortunately, like, don't make it through further development stages, either because the commercial viability isn't interesting anymore to a large pharma company, which, or they're not interesting to, to VC anymore. Um, and that's specifically something where in the neglected disease area where we're making a lot of, um, yeah, we're getting a lot of great, kind of great responses. Um, there's one example where, uh, an anti-malarial was funded by the Bill Amin and the Gates Foundation to go up to the second stage of clinical trial, um, and that company then essentially has been, and now they're at an advanced clinical trial stage, and the results have been very positive. But because of the market they're in, they're not really attractive attractive to to pharma companies, uh, and they're also not attractive to VC funding anymore. Um, and so that's that's a that's a use case that we're looking at at the moment. Um, yeah,
0: and. How would commercialization be handled? Would assets have to be acquired by a traditional pharmaceutical company or other entity to actually commercialize a molecule? Is there an exit from the market?
1: Yeah, great, uh, great question. Um, so, I, as kind of as you just pointed out, one one common exit that we might see from these markets is an acquisition by a larger pharmaceutical player, um, and. So a system like this is actually highly highly attractive for players like this because you have to imagine if, if drugs in very early development stages come onto an open system like this, and you can essentially say see like the daily or the weekly uh, winners and like losers um, based on new data that is being submitted. So, so think of a drug essentially being on the system and gaining in market share as more and more attention of the crowd is being paid to it and more and more data about it is being submitted. Um, so suddenly you could have a, you could have a compound, for example, that goes from a, uh, a market value when it was listed from 5 million to, to suddenly 500 million, um, because it's, it's proven as a very, been a very interesting candidate. Um, and, uh, at this point, a larger pharma player could come in and essentially make a buyout offer to all of the existing, um, holders. Um, what would happen in this case is very similar to, to how uh, this happens on public markets today. Um, you would hold trading in that specific market, and then um, all existing holders in that market would receive kind of the buyout from from the larger player, and then that larger player could continue to develop that drug. Um, and and if, now, the if way that, that this
0: but if that happens, are you not recreating the fundamental problem you were trying to address with IP? <laughs> That's a very good point. So.
1: The, um, I think what you've already done at this point, you've probably massively decreased the, or like ideally you've massively decreased the development costs that have gone up onto that point. Um, but you're absolutely right that, um, this might, this might not be that much different, um, than what the current system is like. Um, essentially what we're building as well is like it's a free market. So if the, if the owners in that market, and this, this then actually goes into governance around how you would govern, um, decision-making in a market like this, if the owners of that market essentially are happy with like a larger player coming in and ensuring that the drug actually makes it to market, um, they could still kind of implement certain pricing rules at that takeover stage. So they could say, for example, if this drug makes it to market, it should ever only be commercialized at that rate. Um, that's one kind of defining factor that can in, that can come in at this point. Um I think in the longer run and this is more like how how the future of pharmaceuticals would work and again this is taking some lessons from open source software I think in the longer run, what you could essentially see happen is if there's enough market force uh, at that point where a drug is actually look, looks quite promising um, what you could start seeing is like the development of cooperatives like digital cooperatives around these drugs um, where now essentially you have you have like a public shareholdership that is that is trying to uh, trying very hard to take this to market and to ensure that the drug doesn't actually, isn't actually, let's say, exploited um, by a larger pharma player when, when it actually comes to market. I think the biggest questions in this case are the high coordination requirements that come on in the advanced stages of clinical trial. I think kind of a, a public cooperative or maybe even a, a, a foundation uh, owning a drug like this could take it to phase one. I think, um, The coordination requirements in phase two and phase three will become quite difficult. Um, but that's not to say that the future, like, that the future couldn't, couldn't develop that. Um, I think what we could really see through almost like if you think of these shareholders as they're all in the same boat and they're trying to coordinate a drug coming to market, many of them might be patients. They might be researchers that are actually really invested and interested in, in, in bringing this drug to market and pricing it fairly. Um, I think we could really see a, a fundamental redefinition of what, what the incentives then are, um, to ultimately bring that drug to market and not necessarily to pay, uh, let's say to pay 60 years of corporate, corporate debt, uh, and shareholder debt, um, to, to a large pharma company that maintains, let's say, yeah, that has over 30,000 employees and offices around the world, but really making drug development much, much leaner, um, and kind of more community and and open source driven.
0: What's the status of the market? How, how have you rolled it out in any form yet? And what are the kind of financial regulatory issues you face in, in putting this into place?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. So our market is still pre pre launch. Um, so we've spent the last year really developing the technology um, to to create these new market structures. Um, we're aiming to launch in Q1 next year, uh, with a variety of, of compounds and like early stage IP. Um, uh, we're talking to a lot of universities uh, across the globe, both in the U.S., um, in, in South Africa, in, in Switzerland. Um, uh, talking to foundations, uh, talking to, we're talking to large pharma as well, like how this might affect their business model. Um, and then, and then obviously talking to a lot of smaller biotech and, and, and pharma companies. Um, and really trying to focus on the key, as I said earlier, the key disease areas that we want to launch with. Um, and then kind of bootstrapping the market from, from both sides. Um, what the product currently looks like from a, say, from a visualization perspective is a mix between a, uh, kind of imagine like a, a Bloomberg like trading interface mixed with a chemical database. Um, and then strong elements of like, um, Uh, a GitHub for scientific developers. So you could actually see who has submitted a certain project, what are the organizations behind that, what are their funding goals, um, how has this market behaved, what is the ownership structure in this market like, um, and essentially then what are the chances of success. Um, So we want to bring strong social um, and and data
0: sharing elements into the entire drug development process. Paul Kohas, founder of Molecule. Paul, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your time, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.